We're so excited because, you know, the whole world of science uh, is really uh, in conflict with Scripture and Christianity, not because they don't go together, but because the evil one wants to undermine what the Scriptures say. And, and so there's all this conflict. But that's why I'm so thankful of men who are so smart. I mean, well, this guy's smart. And then I found out Nancy, she's like a resident scientist back there. She knew all the answers this morning. Uh, that takes, and we look at science, we look at creation, we look at geology. He's a biologist. Uh, and we look at, he was just showing us the, the human cell. And you said 70 trillion cells in the human body. And each of those cells has how many atoms? I don't know. A trillion atoms in each of those 70 trillion cells. And how there's water in each one and how the Lord created. You know, and it's just like, and I thought of those two men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and Jesus was walking with them. And then they realized who he was and then he was gone. It said, and they said, was not our heart burning within us when he was talking to us? My heart was burning when you were talking. I thought this is good stuff. I, I just stand in awe, you know, when you just take the time to stop and look at even a single human cell. And you see the complexity and the structure and you realize that was divinely created. It wasn't didn't just show up in some cosmic explosion. Uh, order does not come out of chaos. At least that's my, been my experience. So we're excited to have Dr. Francis with us. He is from the Master's College in Santa Clarita. He's the head of the science department there. Uh, he's quite accomplished, uh, has done quite a bit of writing. Uh, he's on different panels. He'll be going to Liberty University soon in Virginia uh, for a consortium with other Christian scientists, the good kind of Christian scientists, you know, not Christian scientists. Anyway, you know what I mean? Uh, no Mary Baker Eddy or anything like that. So but, but we need scientists who are Christians uh, desperately. I know they have four children, right? Uh, and one of your sons is finishing up his education at Biola, and they hope he and his wife or fiance uh, hope to go to China as missionaries. Uh, so and you've been here about 14, 15 years. Uh, they grew up in Michigan uh, by came to uh, Southern California via Ohio, uh, spent several years at Cedarville University. Uh, is that where Momentum is this year? Right. Our National Youth Conference is at Cedarville. So to spend time there, and I know they live up over the grapevine uh, off of the Tehom Pass somewhere up there, right? Uh, so it was kind of a arduous journey maybe to get here today. So, But we're so glad to have them here. Hopefully they're going to become good friends of ours. Uh, and I hope you like them as much as I enjoyed Sunday school because my intention is to invite them back again. Uh, so, Dr. Francis, uh, we're going to turn it over to you uh, to come share with us. So we're, we're on. Okay. Let me just see if this. Ah, good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And um, you want to, should I probably stay away from, is that going to, okay. Okay, got it. Thank you. We're going to keep our fingers in Genesis 6, 6 and 7 and 8 regarding the flood. What a great theme for a. Vacation Bible School, um, especially if you're in the part of the country where it probably is flooding. Now, that's a bad joke, isn't it? Um, but uh, 
I was excited. Just I think I saw some fish go by Sunday school, <laughs> a really large green one. <laughs> and uh, that's that's really neat. Made me want to come to the program. Um, as I mentioned this morning, uh, creationism is still alive and well, despite what you've heard. Um, we have creationist schools. We have scientists. We have scientists getting their PhDs, MDs, and they still are creationists. Um, and there's more, I think, than you think, because a lot of them are pretty quiet. Um, but I'm part of a group called the Creation Biology Society. Uh, it kind of closely comes out of the Answers in Genesis and ICR movement. And so I'll be going to Lynchburg Liberty University in a few weeks to meet with these actually uh, scientists from around the world. We have a couple from England coming to our conference. Well, we're actually doing science, but we believe that that science is based on the Bible. And we believe that science is not a hermeneutic of Scripture. Science doesn't interpret Scripture, right? It might help us understand. That's been a problem in the past. So there are others who call themselves creationists, but say, well, Adam probably really didn't exist because we just don't find evidence. And that's taking science and interpreting the Bible. The creation groups I'm part of, we start here, even if it is uncomfortable sometimes. We don't have all the answers. But I can tell you there's exciting things happening in creation research, and I'll share some of those this morning. Also in this new movement, what I'm calling the new creationism. If you want to read a book on it, there's a book by Paul Garner called The New Creationism. And it outlines where we're going. It's a conservative, biblical, even young age view of creation. But we're doing some things that haven't been done in the past. In fact, those who were brave enough to start the modern creation movement in the 1970s, you've heard of Henry Morris and Institute of Creation Research. Um, a lot of that movement in the 70s and 80s and 90s was directed against evolution. And it was good. It was appropriate. But what we didn't do was talk about what does the Bible mean for science? And that's where we're going today in some of these um, these groups. But let me tell you kind of a lighthearted story about evolution before we get jump into some of this data. Um, you know, there's all, all sorts of talk about gender today. Well, there's some new theories in the church about where men and women came from, because there's a story about a little boy named Johnny. He came to his mom one day. He said, Mom... Dad told me that we evolved from apes, from this long line of ape forms. Johnny's mom turned to him and said, Johnny, that's your father's side of the family. <laughs> so you see, there's a new theory. Men come from evolution. Women come from... That's a joke. I'm not expelling. <laughs> okay. So we, we talked about the flood this morning in Sunday school. And I've been focusing on the power and the promises that come from that history. That is a historical event. This morning we talked about how water is powerful even down to its molecular form. And then we talked about how water caused the flood, how water was released on the earth, something called plate tectonics. In this uh, session, I want to talk about a little bit about the questions that people have about the biology. For instance, 
how did we get all how did God get all the animals on the ark? How can there be all these animals today um, if that was only a few thousand years ago? And I'm going to look at that in in that we're going to see more of God's power and creative genius. But I also want to show you that you can celebrate, you can trust God because there's evidence of the flood today and there's evidence in the promises he gave to Noah. So this is where we ended Sunday school. So go with me to Genesis Nine. There's several what I would call promises or declarations by God of things that would happen and things that would not happen. What is the main promise in Genesis nine to Noah and his family? And what is the symbol of that promise today? The rainbow. And the rainbow is a reminder that God would not do what? Destroy the earth with water. But as a creationist, I'm really excited about a pre-promise in a kind of a, a promise before that in chapter 8. Go to 821. Talks about the Lord smelling a, um, smelled a sweet savor from uh, Noah gives a, um, an um, offering. And then he says, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Talks about the ground here. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. And look at this. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now in Southern California, we sometimes have problems with this, Right. But even here, I noticed, even coming from Michigan, I thought, I'm going to miss the fall so much and everything. You still see it. You still see the seasons change. Isn't that kind of neat that one of God's promises to you that the flood took place and that he is alive is that the seasons change? Now, there's a lot of talk today about global warming. I actually believe in global warming before you kick me out. The reason I believe in that, as a young creationist, after the flood, the sky was filled with probably a lot of smoke and water vapor, and it cooled off the earth. So what do we have? There's an ice age. That was only a few thousand years ago. We're still warming up, thankfully. So I believe in that form. Of, and there's extremism on both sides, and I don't know all the truths on that. I'm still trying to interpret. And there's a lot of uh, fear, which we don't need to have. Because this promise says those seasons will continue. There still will be um, winter. As a creationist, I was teaching a Sunday school class one day, and I just on, we got to this verse, and I said, that's, that's really neat, that we can see God, we can be reminded of his promise by seeing the fall colors, by seeing the cold temperatures in the winter, by seeing those plants come up in the spring. That's a promise that flows from God's promise to Noah. Now, here's where the power comes in. And I want to focus in on power because in Romans 1, God says everyone's without excuse because they can see his hand where? In nature, in creation. If you look deep, you see more. What I think is really cool is if a scientist looks really, really deep, 
he can still see that power. But it's available to everyone. We see power all the time. And in, in, we talked about floods this morning and how powerful they can be. This is the tilt of the earth. And that tilt of the earth is maintained by what object up there? The moon. God placed that moon so that the earth... St- now, if the earth isn't tilted, what happens? Let's say the earth goes straight up and down. What happens? We have no seasons. That means, and there's very little ability to lift water from the ground. There's nothing to water the earth. If the tilt goes the other way, what happens? Extreme seasons. I mean, really extreme seasons. Uh, And in fact, the moon in that position causes what to the water on the earth? Pulls what? Tides. Tides support life. They cause a cycle of life. In fact, the tides cause ocean currents. If there wasn't an ocean current right now, Seattle would be a frozen wasteland. Maybe some of you think it should be, but... (laughs) So you would really need Seattle coffee, right? Uh, But isn't that amazing? It has to... It's held... it, It varies just a little bit in the 20, 24, 25, 23. Wobbles a little bit. But without that, we probably don't have life on Earth. And someone asked me someday, you work with scientists. I did research in a lab for 12 years. I looked at the complexity of white blood cells. We talked about the complexity of cells. And someone asked me, why don't your colleagues see God? And I was out in a lake in Michigan. My parents live on a lake. I think I was in a canoe on a moonlit night, and everything was black around. I was out in the middle of the lake. Shouldn't have been because it's kind of dangerous on a night when it's hard to rescue people when they fall out of a boat at night. Anyway, so all I could see was the moon. And I, I thought for one of the first times in my life, how did that get placed there? Have you ever thought about that? Do you realize how big God would have to be to place that moon? That is a large, powerful being. And then I thought about my colleagues. That's scary. For them to turn, they see design in nature, but for them to turn to that God, they would have to bow before him. They would have to change their life. They would have to be in fear because the Bible says that at first, right? So that's power right there. That's power right in front of us. The moon every month comes up. God displays his power and that's part of the seasons that we have. So that's, that was, that's really neat. But let's, let's go look at some of the questions about the ark. Um, people are curious about the size, and we can get into cubits and all that. We won't spend time on that because our time is limited. But we know it's 45 feet tall and 450 feet long. So one of the questions is how many animals can we put in that ark? There's a six-foot person. Do you see the person? The little dot there. That's a 12-foot truck. You can see the truck. It's not, it's not the biggest boat in the world, but pretty big. 14-foot elephant. Thankfully, you don't have to put 100 elephants. You just have to, how many, how many you have to put on the ark? Two. 30-foot dinosaur. People are worried about the dinosaurs. How do we get them on the ark? And you know what that statue is. Looks like we can take the Statue of Liberty and turn it outside and fit easily on the ark. There's a lot of room. The Queen Mary, 
who you've seen up in Long Beach. I think it's about twice the size, something on that. So it's not the biggest boat in the world, but there's a lot of room there. But still, some people say there's 30 million species of animals today. Probably 10 to 30 million. Some of those are bacteria. I work with bacteria, and we're not worried about bacteria, right? They can, they can get in and anywhere. There are Noah's feet. Um, but how many animals? People have been worried about this. If you look at authors going back to the 1500s, some say, well, we could put 80 wolves, 80 sheep, 120 cows. I don't know why they pick certain animals. 1600s, 201 individual mammals. Whitcomb and Morris, the famous book, The Flood said no more than 35,000 individual vertebrate and what's a ver- what's a vertebrate mean animals with a backbone you, you don't have to worry about invertebrates because they're in the they're in the water they'll probably survive the flood 2000 burbs and mammals jones 1973 up to 1996 wooden rappy about 16,000 land animals so a lot of uh, disagreement how do we solve that well Creationists are working on a new idea today called the Barrowman. We think a Barrowman is equivalent to what's called the family. So let's go back at some of our biology. It might be a long time since you've had biology, but you've heard of species, right? The squirrel species out in your yard, the bird species. So a lot of those species make up what's called a genus, a bigger group, and then a bigger group called a family. Let me, let me give you the dog. So domestic dog is in the Canis family. Canid family and wolves and other creatures, dingoes. If you go down to the genus, there's less dog types in that group and down to the species of dogs. So you see family is a bigger group. The Bible doesn't say species. The Bible says kinds. So we've been working on this idea. What is the created kind? And so a theologian, a pastor in the 1940s came up with this idea. He said, well, I'm going to name it. A baraman. Bara means to create. Min means kind. Baraman. So we started a whole new area 12 years ago based on Frank Marsh. His name is Frank, Pastor Frank Marsh. Based on his idea, it's called baramanology. That starts to change things. Because if we only had to have families on the ark, we don't need that many creatures. But let's look at baramanology because it's really interesting. How do we even go there? How do we look at a species today and figure out what a baraman is? What you can do is Frank Marsh thought about this. He said, well, the definition of species is creatures that don't interbreed. So the red squirrels in Michigan, are black squirrels and brown squirrels. They don't interbreed anymore. We're going to call them species. Okay. But believe it or not, if you take those squirrels, most of them don't interbreed because they just like to stay separate. Right. If you put them in a zoo and force them together close, they will interbreed. So Frank Marsh started thinking about, well, maybe if we look at the hybrids on Earth, that's the kind. So he started looking at hybrids. And this is no joke. You, in zoos, you can force the mating of a tiger and a lion and get ligers and tigons. That was mentioned in an old movie called Napoleon, I think. Well, what's that? Napoleon Dynamite, kind of a corny movie, and he had drawings of ligers and tigons, but he was right. Napoleon Dynamite was right. Okay, these do exist. Ligers, the way you remember this is a liger, the father is the first part of the word. So a liger has what kind of father? Lion. Lion. A tigon has a tiger father. Yeah, 
So ligers are the biggest cats in the world. They are huge and they thrive just fine. Tigans are not healthy, are not that healthy, but ligers do exist. That is a huge cat. So of the thousands of cat species today, maybe we only had to have two on the ark, just one male and female, and they rapidly diversified. This is what we're thinking. We think we're thinking there is a cat barrowman or a cat kind. The same with some people have said, even theologians from Dallas Seminary said, I can't believe that Adam was a real person because how could he count all the, how could he name all the animals on a single day? How could he name, he, he's a, a well-known theologian. I think he's even come through our chapel. He said, he said it very craftily. He says, I don't know how Adam can have so many occupations. You know, I, I agree to him for points. He's got to get married, and that's that takes a lot of work, and that, that kind of thing. Sorry, no, it's it's no, marriage is <laughs> marriage is. My wife uh, Becky's here today, and I, I wouldn't be here without her, right? I would be, I don't know where I would be. Uh, so, but uh, how could Adam have all these occupations? Well, what if all he had to do was name the groups? Pretty easy. Here's an insect kind, here's a cat kind, here's a dog kind. At least that's the theory we're working on. And by the way, these are theories. What, what we believe is absolutely true and trust is here. But what, what the science we're doing is theoretical, but we're hoping it will gain attention of other scientists. You can have a, a mating between a llama and a camel and get a comma. This is real. We're thinking there might be a camel kind on the ark. And there's actually more to support this. Let me tell you why. Dr. Kurt Wise is a paleontologist. What's a paleontologist? Someone who studies fossils, bones and fossils and things like that. Harvard trained. He went to Harvard as a creationist. They tried to stop him in the parking lot. He said, I already enrolled. And he ended up working with one of the most famous evolutionists in the world, Stephen Jay Gould. They became friends. Uh, um, Dr. Wise has looked at the mammal fossil record. You've seen evolution trees, right? This thing evolves from this thing, evolution trees. And Dr. Wise has worked with other paleontologists. And ge- what's a geologist? Geologist studies the rocks. They've gone all over the United States and the world, and they find there's a certain area where they think where the flood, post-flood boundary is. There's a little bit of debate about it, but creationists are finding this flood, post-flood... Guess what? All the mammal radiation evolution happens after the post-flood boundary, after that boundary. It's like there's this major radiation. So could there be a camel kind on the ark? And it radiates to llamas and other... uh, um, Camelopardus might be. I think it's a genus. I'd have to find out. Yeah. Uh, This is Rama the Kama. She's just a baby. Came from a hybrid. Polar bears and grizzly bears can mate. It's very rare to find one. Hunters have found them. They have, this one has very black fur under that white fur. They're called growler bears. They can hybridize. And I think this is fascinating. I haven't even told my creationist friends about this because I, I don't know if it's too far off, but everyone's worried about, worried about global warming and the polar bears, right? Because they don't have enough ice. But isn't it interesting that the polar bear genetics could be preserved in the grizzly bear genetics? So if we go back to an ice age, they could diversify back. God, sometimes we put God in a box, don't we? 
And we've got to think larger and, and about these things. He has created a creation that changes. Someone says, well, wait a minute, you're talking about evolution. Absolutely not. One thing about being a young age creationist is evolution takes millions of years of natural selection mutation. We don't believe, it, I mean, we believe those processes exist, but we don't believe there's enough time in any model for them to work. We believe these creatures are diversifying within their kind. So we believe in the beginning there were kinds created. We call that discontinuity, discontinuous creation. You can take a false killer, a false whale, I think they call it, and a dolphin and get a wolfin. If you go to a duck pond, most of those are hybrids. There's some really, our duck pond in Fraser Park has some really weird ones, really weird colors. Um, um, however, there's limits to this, only within a kind. So, for instance, you will not see this on your roof. <laughs> you will not see a shark across on your roof. Okay, shark atrocities. It'd be kind of unnerving, right? <laughs> they start eating your roof or your gutter and try to get to you. So thankfully, this change is limited. But we're really excited about baromenology. We think it's going to help explain. We have gone beyond Frank Marsh's hybrid work, and we developed computer models that have looked at what are called character sets. So if you find a fossil, you can measure its tooth, you can measure its leg, you can measure its skull. Let's call it a character set for that creature. We've put them in three-dimensional computer models, and we've looked at them, and we can start seeing groups and kinds. And so we're, 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 we write papers every year about what we think the whale kind is, what the camel kind is, and so on. So we're really excited about that. In fact, talking about whales, um, I don't know. If, if you're up near Santa Barbara, the Natural History Museum there is small, but it's great. Outside, they have a blue whale. They have a blue whale skeleton. They put a million dollars in that skeleton. It's outside. Right in the middle of the back, they have to suspend the string, something, right in the middle, the backside. What are they suspending there? In all mammal skeletons. Hip bones. Hip bones. Why do whales have hip bones? There's a theory that we're working on. Because God said all the flesh on earth died. Fish seem to be in a separate category. But whales are not fish. They are mammals. And also, I think, and I need to talk to a whale expert, the flood was so catastrophic. What would survive better, a small thing or a large thing? Probably small. I don't see the whales surviving the flood. I think it would be too... I think they could hit their head easily on something. We're thinking there might have been a legged whale kind on the ark. God preserved whales that way. You only need one pair. We could be completely wrong. We've had some other creationists not happy with us about that. But why are those hip bones there? I think we can think creatively about that. So if you actually look then at the mammal families, there are less than a thousand individual. We think there's less than a, you need a less than a thousand individual mammals on the ark to come up with all diversity today, to come up with camels, giraffes, everything today. So we're, we're excited about that number. How much food do you need? Well, you need probably a million gallons of water. The ark has a capacity of 11 million, so water would be 10% of the ark volume. You need fresh water, right? Can't live off of salt water and the murky water. 
You need 2,000 tons of food for those mammals. So hay for those animals will be 50% of the ark volume. Oats, 12.5%. But dried fruit, only 6.8%. So maybe they took a mixture of these things to get that volume of food down. So let's take a look at this again. Animals that we're talking about, the mammal families, be 25% of the ark. Food, 25%. Water, um, less than 10%. 59%. What's that 41% for? I think, I think God has a wonderful picture for us here. What's that 41% for? There's space there for what? Maybe dinosaurs. We're, we're going to include dinosaurs in the... In comfort living for the family and... I, I think he made room for those who wanted to be rescued, right? Isn't that the kind of God we serve? He, wants, he wishes that none would perish. Isn't that interesting? When we do these calculations, there's a lot left over. He had space there for others. Again, this is speculation because we don't know if we have these numbers right, but it's interesting there's a lot of room left when you look at the families. Well, what about after? How do these animals diversify? How do we get 30 million species? It would have to be rapid. This is a little, this is a slide set done by Dr. Todd Wood at Core Academy of Science, another creationist. He worked on uh, genetics. PhD in genetics. Let's just look at bunnies. The rabbits on the ark. Let's, there's lots of different kinds of bunnies today. 54 species of hares and rabbits. That's a lot. This is the little peak pica. It's found at high elevation in the Sierras. Anyone seen one of these? I'd love to see one of these. You see one? Okay, I'd love to see one. They live in they can only live at high elevation. They need cold temperatures. It's so wet up there. What's kind of neat, you'll know you're near a pica nest in the rocks. They'll take the grass and they'll lay it, lay it out to dry. If you see that, you're probably near a pica nest. This is what the tree of life looks like for bunnies. Lots of different ones. This is um, Paleolagus. This is in the fossil record. There is a fossilized bunny. A little scary, scary looking. Okay. So how does this idea of diversification after the flood work? Let's look at the let's look at bunnies. God said in the beginning, creation week, he made the animals. What day? Let's let's review that. What day in the creation week were the animals made? Two days actually. Five and six. Some animals were made on six too. Yeah. Here are the created bunnies. Here they are. We think these are the Behrmans, maybe three Behrmans. We don't, it doesn't have to be just two. We don't know exactly how all this works. We're just speculating. And then, before the flood, of course, you know what rabbits do. They make a lot of rabbits. And probably several different, maybe several different kinds arose. But then, there were the chosen bunnies for the ark, right? They had to be chosen to get on the ark. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of animals migrate and move to one place to another um, by some mysterious power? Could that be a leftover part of how they got to the ark? I think about that a lot. 
So here are the chosen bunnies on the ark. And on the ark, they begin to populate, but they diversify. We believe there's some kind of mutational event that could have happened that's dramatic. And now we have the bunnies today. Again, we're not changing one life form to another, like in the evolutionary scenario. We believe hybridization and other data supports this idea of diversification. How did the animals disperse? And what about the fossil record? Because the fossil record seems to show that there were certain animals in certain layers, as evolution proclaims. Well, let's look at diversification. Does anybody know what this is a picture of? I mean, not diversification. Look at how the animals spread out from the ark. That's a, that's a criticism of the flood. How do we get... What are the animals in uh, Australia called? They have, they have a pouch outside their body. Marsupial. I think Joshua or somebody got it over here. Marsupials. How do they get there from the ark? That's a long way. What's this a picture of? It's not Ararat. It's in the United States. That's St. Helens. Wow. That's, have you ever seen a picture from above? That's pretty good. Oh, yeah, family. Okay. Okay. Because I don't, never had anybody get it. Okay. Very good. That's Mount St. Helens. You see the big mountain spot there. What about the dark spots up in the middle there, up high? What are those? Those are lakes. It's called Spirit Lake. There were some lakes there, but these were recreated because of the, it, was, it was traumatic. Probably like the traumatic events of the flood. If you look at those, it looks like two bodies of water. I think it's actually one. But you see the little gray region in that one? There's kind of a gray, flat region in that lake that goes like this. That's still the lake water. That gray is still lake water. But what's in it? The mountain was full of big... What are the big things that grow? Trees. This is the picture. This is, I think, a picture of Google that Dr. Wood took recently. Those are trees. You see them right there? The whole gray area as floating log mats. They're still there. When did, when did Mount St. Helens erupt? 1981. So 30 plus years. Those logs are still there. We have evidence today that certain small mammals can float on log mats between continents. So Dr. Wise came up with a theory called the floating mat theory. And this is actually a picture from a secular journal showing how animals can raft. What's interesting is if you look at some of the continents where they stick out, see how South America sticks out that way and Africa sticks out that way? There happens to be more animal diversity in those protrusions. That's interesting. Could animals have rafted after the flood? You know, there's marsupial skunks, marsupial cats, marsupial dogs in Australia. Dr. Wise, the paleontologist, he thinks there might have been one marsupial group that rafted to Australia. Pretty interesting. What about the fossil record? This shows the fossil record of plants. So on the left-hand side, this is an evolutionary tree. You've seen these before. On the left-hand side is what's supposed to be the most ancient, the green algae. And then you get mosses. And then ferns and conifers and flowering plants. If we would go outside right now and went to a hillside and we went down in the right place, we would find 
algae and moths, ferns lower down, conifers and flowering plants higher up, as if evolution took place and they were gradually buried. That exists. Some creationists have denied it. That exists. We can't, we shouldn't deny data, that data exists. It looks like evolution. Here is the same evolutionary tree, but more formalized. And whoever named plants, I think it was a bit crazy, because I'm not going to try to pronounce those. But those are, those are plant names, and they show. But what I want you to notice, Dr. Wise picked up on this again. He's one of our brightest creationists today. What do you notice about the plants on the left as they go to the right? There's something common about the left side plants and the right and there's something common among the right side plants. Seeds, okay. What else? Has to do with where they live. That's it. Dry is on those who live in dry climates are on the right or left. Right. Right. So they're what we call terrestrial. Terrestrial means what? Land. The left-hand plants, algae and mosses, really need water. So they're aquatic. That was excellent that you picked up on, on that. So it's aquatic. This is interesting. It's aquatic to terrestrial. Dr. Wise remembered a field trip he took when he was 12 years old to a floating bog. Now, if you grew up on the West Coast, you might not have seen these, but have you ever seen one in person or on a video? Lakes, all lakes grow over naturally. And they'll start growing over on top. They'll be floating debris. It'll connect. Grass will form. Out east, you can walk on these. You have to be careful. You can fall through. Some have trees on them. So he's with his junior high class, and they're jumping up and down, and the trees are moving back and forth. That's stuck in his mind. So Dr. Wise started thinking about this idea. What if we had continents that were floating, or at least some continents that were floating? And on the edge, they were very thin, so they had what? The aquatic or dry plants? The aquatic. And terrestrial to the right. If the flood comes in, what's it going to break off first? The aquatic and bury those in line. It's called the floating uh, mat theory or the floating continent theory. And we have published this and we're still working on it. This is, it's formalized in the Answers magazine. You see the flood coming in, breaking off those aquatic plants and burying them. This is just a theory, but it's something that we're working on. If you go to the Answers in Genesis Museum in Kentucky, there's a mural depicting the edge of the floating forest. There's a lot more to this. If Dr. Wise was here, he would tell you that underneath those same areas in the fossil record are coal beds. Coal comes from what? Plant material that compresses, making coal. I think God is also, I th- we have to recognize his wisdom because what do we use that coal and oil and gas for today? For modern, our energy. He, he saw everything in the future, didn't he? He knew the future. He, would, he knew that in our modern times, we would need some form of energy. Fascinating. So, here's a summary. and I've we'll, got a few minutes for uh, 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 questions. The evidence of the flood is all around us. We saw this in um, Sunday school this morning. It looks like the water in the oceans were vaulted onto the continents by what's called catastrophic plate tectonics. And what we find are seashells over the entire continent. 
and we find diversified animals around us and we find that fossil record everywhere. I remember walking on what's called a cutaway spillway in Ohio on these fossilized seashells. You could walk for acres. And it's interesting that God shows evidence of his wrath, yet in that evidence is great beauty of his creative handiwork. Don't you look forward to a day when you're going to see a new creation? We're not even seeing half the things today he made. They've gone extinct. So there's beauty in, in that and he allows us to see and there's evidence all around us. There's power in creation and in his, his promises. There's power in, in, in water uh, and we see its devastating effects today. God's promises are evident today in the cycles of nature, in um, the rainbow, in, um, uh, uh, in the Bible, there the promises. God is long suffering. So let's go back to something that's relevant to today. This is where we'll be our last point. Go to Genesis 6, 11. We, we talked about this in Sunday school. Genesis 6, 11. Kind of goes along with those two points. God is long-suffering and he'll not tolerate sin forever. What does it say there? Why did God cause the flood? The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. Have you been reminded about that in the last few weeks? We talked about this in Sunday school. Imagine God watching us now kill each other in our own country. Devour ourselves. This is what he couldn't stand before the flood. How much longer? How much longer will he tolerate that and he will judge the earth because he promised not to destroy the earth right he promised not to destroy the earth but go to second peter three quickly by water he promised not to destroy it by water second peter three six and seven By which the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. He's, res- I hate to say it, right? But we're being preserved for fire to come. We're being preserved because God wants people to be saved. But there is another judgment coming. And that's certainly a message that I think we need to find to preach in a way that people understand to see that what they're doing to each other is only evidence of their sin and their separation from God. So God will will judge the earth again. The fossils around us remind us of that. Well, I wanted to hit on those few theories to show you where creationism is going. I hope it doesn't unsettle you that we have these theories that might be hard to take. But as creationists, we are making some waves. On the, on the computer model 
that we made to show how we can determine Berriman's? An evolutionist picked up within a few years, and he used our he used our computer program to model evolution. And he said, "You guys are all wrong, but I like your program." What we liked about that is he also looked at our data to explain creation, to help explain creation. But again, we have to be careful. Science is fallible. Science is fun. It's a gift from God. It's given us medicine, but it's. It's made by us. It's practiced by us, and we're fallible. But what's great about doing science based on the Bible, I, I, I enjoy doing science so much because of the biblical framework that I have. And someone may say, well, science shows there's no gods. Science and faith don't go together. Well, tell that person to read about Isaac Newton. Tell them to read about some of the greatest scientists. Isaac Newton is considered to be the greatest scientist of all time, and he had no problem with faith in science. In fact, let me give you this one tidbit about that, about where creationism is going, because I think Newton is a model for us. Newton discovered gravity. There was another group of people that challenged him. They were people who followed Descartes. You've heard of Descartes. Descartes said, you can't believe anything that you can't see, except for God. He still believed in God. It was an interesting guy. Descartes' followers said, gravity doesn't exist. Newton knew there was a spiritual world that you couldn't see. He discovers gravity. Has anyone seen gravity yet today? We think there's a particle, but no one's seen it. Do you see how the Christian worldview made that scientist successful? The greatest scientist of all time. Yeah, things they can't see do exist. And that led him to discover gravity, a little-known point in the history of science. Christian creationists have influenced science. And I think I'm excited about uh, the days ahead. i just share one more thing because the kids are coming in three minutes. Uh, Dr. Todd Wood and I are working on human evolution. We are using barometrological techniques to look at the human fossils. What's great about the Bible there's only two choices. Either those fossils are apes or they're human. So I don't have to worry. But our data is certainly showing that Neanderthals were human. They buried their dead. And our, our character set data is showing that. We think some others were probably human also. The ape fossil called Lucy who walked, we believe she was just a walking ape. But it's exciting. We're publishing our work, and we believe evolutionists are now looking at that. Thing, and I hope some of them are saying, that kind of makes sense. I want to see scientists come to Christ. And I want to work in these areas so that they will at least maybe pay attention a little bit to what we're saying. To say that they're all wrong all the time doesn't get us anywhere. We can say that among ourselves because evolution is failed. But I want to see scientists who are right there on the cusp of recognizing the power in God, I want, to, I, want, I want them to take that next step to see that there's a Savior. And it's exciting work in, in creationism today. I do have more, but I can do that next time. Because some people say, how did animals recover after the flood? And there's some interesting things we can talk about. I can end in prayer. Okay, questions. That's right. Questions. I want to take some questions. Yes. Do you think that the theory of evolution contributed to the 
I think, I think yes and no. I think, I think the Bible talks about our hearts just being that way, and we can be violent without it, but it sure doesn't help. It, um, it sure... I think the best example of that is probably Hitler, who placed faith in the idea in genetics, and he thought there were bad genes, and that he could wipe them out. The problem is it was really bad science, and uh, it was more evolutionary science based on eugenics. So yes, even though I think our heart's evil without that, it it probably pushes some over the edge. That direction. Yeah. You yeah, so there's a lot of different creations today, and uh, there's old Earth. There is um, some people say there was a long fourth day. Um, there are day age believers. There are gap creationists. All of them try to take the millions of years of evolution and put them into Genesis. By young age, what we mean is if you if you take a simple interpretation, what we call a straightforward reading of the Bible, if you look at the genealogies of Genesis five and eleven. They are, they are chronogenealogies which go up to Christ, meaning there wasn't much time between Adam and Christ. Then I think there's some smoking gun passages, like in Exodus, the, in the Decalogue passage, where God says he creates the creation week. You will work six days and rest, because he says what? Because I created, God said he created the earth in what? Six days. We think it's the simplest interpretation of the Bible. Is it uncomfortable sometimes? Yes. Is it hard to be a young age creationist? Yes, some days it is. I think uh, some of our creationists believe that if a strict interpretation is 6,000, Dr. MacArthur in his Bible goes up to 10 to 14, I think, based on some of the work by which. So there's, but that's still millions of that's light years away, literally, sorry about the pun, from the billions of years that are suggested. And we don't have all the answers. We don't have answers on starlight and time. Let me give you this one thing. We do have a Danny Faulkner is working on starlight and time. He's looking at a new theory called the Dasha theory. Because when God, here's what he bases it on. When God created the plants, apparently he didn't create them directly. He said, come forth from the earth. He said, they came forth from the earth. There's some kind of immediate process. And there's a, there's a Hebrew word called Dasha. He's taking that word Dasha and applying it to starlight. That God probably made that light come to the earth quickly, even though it looks like it's far away. But I think sometimes what we do is miss the point. I think God is scratching his head because when you look at the stars in the Bible, he wants you to see his power. He wants you to see that he's the creator. And we get hung up on all these time things. It's kind of funny. But I do believe a simple reading of the Bible leads to young age creation. And again, we don't have all the answers for that. I'll pray we'll have the kids come in. Lord, we thank you for your... Uh, creation, we thank you that you evidence yourself in that, as the pastor mentioned in his prayer, the beauty. The beauty of creation is something that science cannot even explain. And so we thank you that we can see that beauty all around us, and we thank you that from those evidences all around us, we can point our neighbors to you. And through the life of Christ and the gospel words that we can preach, we can point them to a Savior. We pray that our lives would be about that, that our lives would follow you. We pray that we would stand up in a nation for life. We would stand against the devaluation of it also. We thank you for this day that we can honor you in Christ's name. Amen.